You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, there's nothing like a little pressure right before you come up and preach to those last words on your mind. Uh, you know, Lord, show us your glory through the preaching of your word. That's a tall order, uh, but the Lord is up to it. And so let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 26. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 26. And also to wish you a happy Reformation Sunday, which is what today is. Uh, For churches that value that period of church history called the Reformation, we look forward and appreciate what this Sunday means. So Reformation Sunday is always the Sunday just before Reformation Day, which falls actually at the same time that we'll be having our trunk or tree outreach in the parking lot. Because it was on October 31st, 1517, that Martin Luther began the Protestant Reformation. He printed these 95 theses, which actually then led to Pope Leo X excommunicating him. And later, another guy named John Calvin joined the Reformation, and that's how it all began. And that's how it has come down to us even today. That period of the Reformation in the 1500s was all about the gospel because there was enormous confusion in the church at that time, the Catholic Church, about how we are saved, how God keeps us by his grace through the gospel, and they stood up for truth to great um, expense of their own, of their own lives, really. And those truths have trickled down to us through so many different voices from even those many hundreds of years ago. In fact, one of those voices was another reformer named Ulrich Zwingli. Listen to what Ulrich Zwingli said, and this is a good way to kind of set the tone for what we want to consider in God's word this morning. He said this, The sum of the gospel is that God has given himself for our sakes and all his possessions with him. Let me read that again. The sum of the gospel is that God has given himself for our sakes and all his possessions with him. That is incredibly good news, which is in fact what the word gospel means. It means good news. And the good news is that God gave his own son to enter our sinful world on behalf of sinners like us so that he could live a perfect life in our place, do something we never could do, which is keep God's commands and then die on the cross in our place because we had broken God's commands and we deserved the penalty of our sin, which is death. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. And since then has been calling people all around the world to himself through the power of his Holy Spirit so that sinners like us could be awakened, have our eyes opened and our ears unstopped to hear this good news, but that we wouldn't just hear it but that God would use that good news to transform our hearts. And what we're going to be reminded of this morning is, again, as we've been considering in this season in the book of Galatians, the relationship between the two big voices in the Bible. One voice is the voice of the law, and one voice is the voice of the gospel. And so this Reformation Sunday this morning, as we hope all of our Sundays are, is all about the wonders 
of the promise of the gospel. That's a word that comes up a lot in Galatians. It comes, a lot, comes up a lot this morning. And so that's what we want our focus to be on this morning as a way to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Remember, this is the last Sunday of the month. We will celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a few moments. And then actually also, as we've been doing on this last Sunday, we'll have a time of guided prayer together as a congregation uh, with all of our guests who are here. And then after that, we'll enjoy lunch together, which is pizza, and spend some time fellowshipping. So it's a, it's a great Sunday for us to be together and thinking about the, the wonders of God's promise to us. So, so here's what we want to do. We're going to look at three truths this morning from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 26, just to give us another help in thinking carefully about the relationship between those two voices, the law and the gospel. And in particular, to be reminded of why the gospel is paramount and how our misunderstanding about the gospel, if we get that flipped around where we live out of the law rather than the gospel, has detrimental effects on our faith. So instead, we want to center our lives on the gospel and we pray that these three truths from Paul's writing in Galatians will help us with that. Here's the first truth. The first truth is that the law cannot stop God's gospel promise. Now remember, we're coming into a letter here written to these these Christians in his day, and they were wrestling with some things that, frankly, many of us wrestle with. I know that I do. And Paul is trying to give this clarifying message about how those two things work together and how we should consider them in the Christian life. We also get to see the way that they, like us, had, had flipped it around in some serious ways which were really concerning Paul. But we notice first that the law cannot stop God's gospel promise. Notice what he says in verse 15. He says, brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now, this is what he means. The central truth of Galatians, and really the central truth of the Bible, is that we are saved from our sin purely because God made a promise to save us from our sin. That's why we are people of a promise. We're not people of a set of works. We are not people of a law. We are people of a promise. Everything about our faith is grounded and wrapped up and enveloped and packaged together inside a promise that God has made. Now, in the version of the Bible that I'm using, the CSNs that must be met in order to receive a promise that has been made, a set of conditions that must be met in order to receive a promise that has been made. And so Paul uses that word here, the word covenant, because he's helping them to see what kind of covenant we have with God and trying to remind them that our covenant with God, the one that saves us, the one that keeps us, the one that makes us Christians, is a covenant of promise. What he tells us is that God had made a covenant to bless the whole world through someone named Abraham and someone else who he refers to as his seed. And this is where we read in other places in the Bible that the gospel was preached to Abraham. Now listen to this in verse 16. He says, 
Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham. These are the gospel promises. When, when God went to Abraham and called him from his town, he was not following God. He was, uh, he was not a believer. He was not what we might equate to a Christian. He was actually a pagan. God chose to take Abraham, this pagan guy, and convert his heart and win him to himself through just sheer power of the gospel. And he made a covenant with Abraham. He made an arrangement where there are conditions to be met and a promise to be received, but it was a very unique kind of covenant. It wasn't like a covenant of works where Abraham has to keep the conditions. That's what we see coming later, as Paul says, when the law comes to God's people. Rather, the covenant with Abraham is a covenant where God meets the conditions and God gives him the promise. That's why it's called good news. That's why it's called a covenant of promise. Now, what the big deal is here and why Paul is going to such lengths to talk about this in this letter to the Galatians is that Paul's readers had become severely confused. That's why we read earlier in Galatians where Paul says, who has bewitched you? who has put you under a spell. It was like they had been turned around and captivated by this other way of seeing the Christian life. And it was wreaking havoc in their lives spiritually. But Paul is committed, like the reformers of the Protestant Reformation, to hold up the gospel high and to try to clear the air for them so that they could return to a clear view of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to believe in the gospel. What Paul's readers had done, it's the same thing that you and I tend to do, is to flip around the law and the gospel. It is to make the law the center of the Christian life, the way that we think about how we're forgiven. Of course, we would think, I'm forgiven because I keep God's rules. I've done all the things he said to do, which isn't true. We've all broken God's rules, but nevertheless, that's what we think. Or... We think as Christians in our daily lives, okay, things are going good. God's happy with me. I can expect him to do good things for me because I've really been keeping up with the rules. I read my Bible every day this week. I prayed at least five minutes every day this week. And I did share the gospel with that guy last week. That was good. That's another thing on the list. That's the way that sometimes we tend to think about the Christian life. But what Paul is calling us back to is a reversal of that thinking, back to the pure gospel. And so the, the thing that, that these Galatians were doing is they were sort of assuming or thinking that because the law of God came in later, it must have undone that earlier covenant with Abraham. So yes, God made this covenant of promise to Abraham, but later in comes the law, another kind of covenant, a covenant of works. So maybe that's the one we should live in because that's the most recent one. And so Paul clarifies for them in this really helpful way the way that they should think about, the way they should think about uh, God's covenant with them. So go right back to verse 15. Let's just keep it all in line because this can be a little confusing. Brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. He tells them, no one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will or a covenant. He's saying, but that's sort of what you're doing. You've come to Christ through the gospel but now you're setting aside that covenant of promise and now you're living by this covenant of the law. He says in verse 16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his offspring, but notice 
It does not say to offsprings, referring to many people, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So he's just reminding them. The gospel and the promise God has made is so miraculous and wonderful. It was made to Abraham and to his later descendant, Jesus, who would fulfill the covenant and bring it all together for God's people. So he says in verse 17, this is always helpful to me. I love it when something's really straightforward, easy for me to understand. He says, my point is this. So notice, though, he's recognizing, I think he's recognizing for them, this can be confusing. It can be, it's a hard truth. This distinction between the law and the gospel might be, even to quote Martin Luther, it might be the most difficult art in the Christian life. That's why we wrestle with it so much. So it's good that Paul says, my point is this, the law, God's commands, his uh, expectation, revelation of his character and expectations in the law may be summed up in the Ten Commandments plus the rest, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, and it does not cancel the promise. You see that? That's the problem. That's my problem. My problem is I think and I live this way on a regular basis. I know that the gospel is there. I know that I'm saved by grace alone. But then something tells me in my heart, I really should be working to make sure I keep this grace in my life. And I am under the impression that this law keeping of my Christian life today is more important than my gospel believing. That's why when people start talking about the gospel a little too much, I tend to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, I understand all that, but the law, the law, the law, the law. And then I find myself in the same place that these believers find themselves. So Paul is making it really clear that the law does not take away the promise made to Abraham, that their faith is actually grounded in God's promise or his covenant of promise, not in this new covenant of, of works that they know about. And he's telling them this so that they can reverse course and go back to their true love, to go back to what is ultimately true and what is at the center of their hearts. That that law does not invalidate the covenant. God had already made this covenant to Abraham. You might think of it this way. We could use another kind of human illustration in our day. Just imagine that there's a single woman and she's lived single a long time and she has this really nice house out in the country and she's concerned because she doesn't see a path for her to be married one day. What's gonna happen to the house? So she decides to deed it to her younger sister. But then a little later in life, she does find a husband and they marry. What happens to the house? Nothing about that agreement with her sister changes because later she's been married. You see, it's the same kind of picture, but that can be confusing. Paul is trying to help them understand the serious spiritual error that was creating serious problems for the Galatians. It had created a complete misunderstanding of their whole life. That's why this is important. That's why there's, there's so much written in the Bible about this. That's why this law gospel distinction is so prominent throughout the Bible. Because if you get this wrong, it wreaks havoc across your Christian life. 
It doesn't just affect one little part of your Christian life. It affects everything. It bleeds into everything. It becomes, if we just want to talk real frank about daily life, it becomes the reason that you're so anxious. It becomes one of the possible reasons that you often may feel so depressed. It's one of the reasons that you're afraid. It's one of the reasons that you feel such tension sometimes about your relationship with God. It, it's, it becomes one of the reasons that you might turn away momentarily from God, try to go somewhere else to find the comfort and hope that you are, are, are looking for. It can become the reason that you look for your happiness, which all of us do, in something other than God's promise to us in the gospel. It's super important. It's, it is the most important thing in the Christian life. So this happens to all of us. We shift our hope from the promise of God's grace, which, as Ulrich Zwingli reminded us at the very beginning of this sermon, the sum of the gospel is that God has given us himself. That's the promise. I'm giving myself to you as the ultimate joy and promise of the covenant. I've done everything in my son to make this possible and to give myself to you. And I give you everything I have. But sometimes we shift our hope from that promise and from those spiritual possessions and we put them somewhere else, usually, as we see here, and as we see in my life and yours, usually, where do we put them? In our performance. We put them in how good we can do at being good people. When the Bible never says, try to be a good person. The Bible says, Jesus is the good person. Find yourself in him. Find your happiness. Lose your anxiety. Uh, rejoice. Um, give your heart and life to what he has done for you. So the first application here that we should take away and carry right into the Lord's Supper here in a few moments is to keep, 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 keep your hope centered on the promise of grace, on the gospel. Which friends, hear this, hear this and be comforted. I hope it would re relieve some of the weight that you probably feel on your shoulders like I do the gospel requires no performance from you. There are no conditions that you have to keep in order to get the promise. That's what grace is. All of it, from the very beginning to the very end, is all of grace. He has poured it out on you if you are, have faith in Christ. That's how you got that faith in Christ. And he is keeping you by it. And he needs nothing else from you. He doesn't need anything from you to keep you, to love you, to forgive you. He's already made his promise to you. He's accepted you into his covenant of promise by coming to you in your captivity under sin. And he has taken you to himself so that he might delight you and know you and you know him forevermore. I don't know how else to put it. We just got to keep putting it that way. Because that's the way to put it. That's the gospel. That's what the good news is all about. And the law cannot stop. It cannot stop what God is determined to do in the gospel. So here's the second truth, though. What about the law, then? What is the law supposed to do? If it's not the thing we're going to keep up with so that we can stay in the family, and if it's not the thing that we're going to keep doing so that we can feel good about being in the family, 
then what in the world is the gospel all about? Well, Paul tells us here. Notice in verse 18, he says, for if the inheritance is based on the law, it's no longer based on the promise, but God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. Then verse 19, here's a logical question. Why then? Why then was the law given? Well, Paul says here that the law came because of transgressions as a kind of temporary provision until the promise would come. That's why it came after the gospel and carries God's people forward and kind of keeps them in custody with this system of sacrifice that prepared them to always be looking for the ultimate sacrifice of Christ until one day the promise would become complete. And everything would be put to rights. And then we are even still now looking forward to the ultimate day of our redemption. But notice what he says in verse 19. Why then was the law given? He says it was added because of transgressions until the seed, my Bible has a capital S, rightly so, that's Jesus, because the seed of Abraham, that promised descendant, who is the eternal son of God, to whom the promise was made, would come. So you're seeing how the law was functioning in the lives of God's people down through the ages. It was added because of transgressions until until Jesus would come and ultimately bring the promise all together. He goes on and he says, the law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Okay, actually, this is a funny thing to say. Earlier in the bathroom, Pastor Kevin asked me if it's harder to preach when I have to make it a little shorter because we're going to do the Lord's Supper and we're going to have this prayer time together. That's not the part that makes it harder. It's stuff like this that makes it harder. It's the confusing stuff. It's hard to kind of get our minds around this. But since this can be a little confusing, let's, let's try to understand it in some simple ways. Okay, here Let's just take two truths here and, uh, and take what we can from them in the time that we have. Let's start with the first part. He says, the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. Okay, first answer to what that means. I don't really know. I don't completely know what that means, but here's what we can gather from it just by taking it face value. The Bible says that angels were involved in the conveying of the law to Moses and God's people that there was a divine work that took place and there was a, a kind of mediating force in, in, that, uh, in that process. But notice what he says next. He says a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. So there are multiple uh, sort of voices in play or, or forces at play here in the giving of the law. He's drawing a distinction between what happened with the gospel The gospel had no one else involved. It was only God. God did the gospel work all by himself. He did the delivering of the covenant to Abraham all by himself. And therefore, he is the one who is ultimately at the center of the gospel, showing that it's all of himself. So Paul asked this question because it's the question coming on the minds of these Galatians. Then is the law contrary to the promise because it's different? Are they at odds with each other? And Paul says this, no. 
He says, rather, to put it simply, the law is not in competition with God's promise in the gospel, but it is a servant of the promise. You can always already kind of see that. God makes the covenant with Abraham, and then the law comes in as a servant to carry them forward under God's God's character and his expectations and the sacrificial system right up until the true Passover lamb would come and he would do away with all of their guilt and there he would take them ultimately and they would be united to him. I know that that can be confusing. It's a little confusing to me, but hopefully we can keep wrestling with this. These, the Bible is not intended for us to read it once and walk away. Uh, the Bible is intended for us to keep looking into this divine truth, heavenly truth, to help us. So here's the key truth we want to take away so that we can think about it in our own lives. The law is not the master. The gospel is the master. The law is the servant. That's what we have to think about because that's how we get it flipped, right? What happens when you become legalistic in your regular Christian life? You slide over and you go back under the law as your master, rather than staying focused on the gospel. This is the key. And so that's why he says in verse 21, is the law therefore contrary to the promise of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would certainly be by the law. But he says it's not. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That's why the law came in. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. Another way we could say this is that the law is like a handmaid of the gospel. Like throughout history, handmaids assisted monarchs with different things like care and companionship, giving help to accomplish their purposes. That is what the law does. But hear it. This is the problem, right? We're not living under the monarch of the gospel as much as we should. We slide over and we start making our monarch the law. And when that happens, you will immediately feel an incredible burden of responsibility that you cannot keep. You will feel a weight of expectation that you cannot carry. It cannot be done. It was not meant for you to carry. It was meant for Christ to carry, and he has carried it. That, that is the gospel. That is the good news. Here's what another uh, Puritan, another uh, reformed thinker says, named Samuel Bolton. The law sends us to the gospel for our justification, and the gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of life. So the law has this purpose in our lives today of helping us know with gratitude, how should I serve God? How can I love God? How can I be happy and rejoice in the promise that he has made to me? Not how can I win his promise? How can I be approved by him? Instead, we do this by belief in the gospel. Therefore, now that the promise, as Paul says, who is Christ has come and completed his redemptive work, we no longer look to the law to atone for our sin. We don't need to. 
but we do, right? You do that, right? I do that, right? You see the way you do that. What we need to be doing is ever turning back again and again. The way that we, in error, turn to the law, we need to, in truth, turn back to the gospel. That's what we mean when we talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves. We have to keep reminding ourselves of what covenant has saved us. Where do we belong? Where is our heart? Where is our hope? Our hope is not in that law. Our hope is in the gospel. So second application this morning, just as you're keeping, keeping, keeping your hope centered on the gospel of grace, watch, watch, watch for the ways that you and I, like the Galatians, go back to the law instead of moving forward with the promise. Back to the law, back to the law. And when you see yourself doing that, immediately, immediately, Preach the gospel to yourself. Draw to your mind what Jesus has done to you. Remember how God by himself with no mediator and no help made his promise to Abraham. And by making his promise to Abraham, he to you as one of his chosen people made his promise to you because you belong to him. Keep bringing that truth over and over and over again and watch the weight of the law fall off of your shoulders and back onto Christ because his yoke is easy and his burden is light and he wants to give you rest. And this is the biggest rest that, that all of us really, really need. And so this is where we bring home this truth before we celebrate the Lord's Supper with one last point or truth from this text. And here it is. It's the simple reminder again. And I hope that you'll take this in your heart and you'll take it into everything that you say to God before you take the bread and the fruit of the vine and that you would pray about this and you would preach it to yourself even in this moment. We have been born again by faith alone in Jesus. That's how we have come to faith and that's how he keeps us. Notice in verse 25 as we bring Uh, this message to a close. He says, but since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For through faith, you are all sons and daughters of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says it clearly again. Since faith has come, we are no longer under the law as our keeper or as our guardian, as our monarch, As our master, we are rather under Christ who has fulfilled the law for us and we with him continue to obey him out of joy and gratitude and service, not out of some sense of earning from him the promise that he's made. He's already given it to us. It's a little bit like, imagine someone growing up in an orphanage and being under the care and guardianship of that orphanage until one day we are adopted by God. This is what the people of God experienced throughout the Bible until one day when Christ came, our, our perfect older brother came and adopted us finally through his life, death, and resurrection. And now we are brothers and sisters with him. We are sons and daughters of God in Christ 
And this adoption has radically changed our relationship to the law. So quick conclusion, we no longer look to the law for our approval before God. We are approved by a promise, which as we've seen is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace from the God of the covenant of a promise. And I pray that that would delight our hearts today. I pray that it would comfort us and enlighten us and open our eyes to the beauty of what God has done for us because he has in the gospel given us himself for our sakes and all of his possessions with him. And that's what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper. Let me invite those who are going to be handing out the elements to come forward as I pray, and then we are going to hand them out and celebrate the Lord's Supper before we pray as a congregation this morning uh, under some, some directed prayer prompts. Um, Father in heaven, we give you thanks because uh, you are in heaven and you do whatever you please. And it's amazing to think that in this fallen world to fallen people like us, what you have pleased to do is make a covenant with us that requires nothing of us, but instead that you would give us your favor and forgiveness and love and righteousness and everything else purely as a gift of your grace. That you, in Christ, completed all of the conditions necessary. You did all that was necessary so that we could receive your promise of grace to be united to you forevermore and to enjoy you. And we pray that would be more true of us. We're honest and humble in saying that there are many days we do not enjoy you. God forbid there be even another one. Help us, Lord, to enjoy you because of your promise to us. Help us to become people of promise and to know the light and easy burden of Christ uh, and to know the rest that he gives us. We pray you would help us celebrate that now as we take the Lord's Supper together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. They're going to go ahead and start uh, distributing the elements of the Lord's Supper. And, uh, and I just want to encourage you that if you're a Christian here with us today, whether you're a member of our church or not, we welcome you to take the Lord's Supper with us. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're kind of checking out the church or you were invited by someone and you're not a Christian, then what you should do is pray and observe Watch what this means and think about it and pray that God would give you everything that you need so that you could believe in him the ways that we've been talking about today.